Today's reading is Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God because of all my remembrances of you. I always make each of my prayers for you with joy because of your participation with me in the gospel from the first day until now. I am also confident that the one who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion at the day of Christ. It is right for me to exercise this judgment about you because I hold you in my heart, for you all are fellow participants with me in grace, both in my chains and in the defense and establishment of the gospel. For God is my witness of how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and all moral understanding, so that you may be able to discern and determine what is best in order that you might be people of sincerity and integrity for the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. May I speak in the name of the living God. Is there a future for us? This is maybe not a question that you typically talk about around the dinner table. Although these days, someone might want to bring up the possibility of nuclear holocaust with North Korea just to know they aren't alone in being so worried about it. But for the most part, the question, is there a future for us, belongs to the movies. The apocalyptic movie has virtually become a genre of its own. You all know the story, right? Some calamity threatens the future of humanity, it threatens the future of the world, and it's up to a small group of people against all odds to save humanity, and somehow they prevail. And humanity more or less survives. There's variations of this movie. There's uh, the ecological disaster caused by modern industrial societies that makes the Earth an uninhabitable planet in the future. And so it's up to a few explorers to find a place for humanity to live so that we can survive. That's Interstellar and Wally, you know. <laughs> um, then there's, there's the technological disaster, the, the very technology that, that we make to help us rule and protect the world ironically turns against us. And it would all but destroy humanity if not for a few heroes who rise up and put that technology back in its place. And that's Avengers Age of Ultron, it's iRobot, it's uh, the brave little toaster, I don't know. (laughs) 
Or there's, there's some movies that are, are perhaps the most cynical, which uh, they're, they take place in the aftermath of some calamitous apocalypse. And um, uh, the world as we know it is over. Human society as we know it is over. And um, all the veneer of goodness is peeled back. And you just see in the place of society is a dystopia fueled by greed, lust, power, and self-interest. And that's Mad Max Fury Road and Left Behind. Um, I've never watched Left Behind, but I think that's probably about what it is. Uh, All of these movies share a single question, uh, one that dominates our popular imagination, but which we're too often anxious or fearful to talk about. Is there a future for us? If there is, it seems, according to these movies at least, the the future is bleak. It's it's miserable. It's dreadful. It's a realm of untold desperation, suffering, and pain. If, uh, If these apocalyptic movies take up the question of the future in its its sort of most cosmic proportion, uh, the, the 2016 film, Things to Come, set in contemporary France, takes up the question of the future in its most sort of ordinary human way. Um, it's about Natalie Chaveau, a philosophy professor, who's she's thrown into a future that she didn't expect when her husband of 25 years tells her he's leaving her for a younger woman, and when her ailing mother suddenly dies from complications of a fall in in her nursing home. And along with these major disruptions in her life are a series of minor disruptions that come with aging. Her children have grown up and they've moved out of the home. Her publisher won't renew her series of books on philosophy because of differences they have about marketing. And, and what her publisher says to her in the movie really stands for what the movie, the story the movie tells, which is um, the publisher says, your future is compromised. And so the rest of the movie is this really sensitive exploration of the reality that you can do nothing to guarantee your future. That death always comes more suddenly than you would expect. And that you cannot go back. You can only go forward. I wonder if you get the sense that your future is compromised. I wonder if you found yourself thrown into a future that you did not expect. The death of mother or father, sister, brother, son or daughter, not only fills you with such grief and sorrow in the present, it it represents a a stolen future. The only future you can now imagine is the future you least want to imagine. It's a future without the person you love so much. Um, The mystery illness that has plagued you for so many years, you finally have realized won't go away. The future you imagined for yourself is foreclosed. Your spouse says, I'm leaving you. And you find yourself saying, 
I thought you would love me forever. I thought we had a future together. What an idiot I was. Or the career that you've worked so long developing for, for whatever reason just won't work out. And now the future is open in, in the, what seems like the worst way possible. It's utterly uncertain. Is there a future for you? Is there a future for us? This is the threshold that the Apostle Paul crosses as, as he begins writing to his friends at Philippi. And, and by the way, this sermon is, is the beginning of a series on the book of Philippians, and it will carry us through to the end of the year. And I think Philippians has words that God wants us to hear. Um, at the time that Paul wrote this letter, Paul was in prison. He was suffering. And, and humanly speaking, both his future and the future of the church was uncertain. Um, you can imagine Paul sitting alone in prison and contemplating his circumstances and realizing that he might die soon, very soon. You can imagine him, him thinking, is all the work that I've done for all these churches throughout the world in vain? Is there a future for the church at all? At this point, the church and the whole, the, the whole gathered church in the world was like a match lit on a windy day. A tiny flame that could be so easily extinguished, but maybe, just maybe, could light the whole world on fire. Paul's friends in Philippi were also suffering they're engaged in conflict with the authorities in Rome. They were excluded from community and society uh, by their pagan neighbors. Uh, as a result, they experienced the loss of their livelihood. They're plagued by turmoil both within the congregation and from without. Is there a future for us? Is there a future for the church? This is the question that Paul takes up in his opening words to his friends at Philippi. And I want to invite you now to open your Bibles to Philippians 1. Um, if you use the blue Bible, it's on page 980, uh, which is under your seat. You're welcome to use the Bible app on your phone. In the beginning of his letter to the Philippians, Paul talks twice to his friends about the things to come. Twice he speaks to them about the future. The day of Christ is Paul's name for the future. And this is the word of the gospel that you need to hear this morning. The future belongs to Jesus. The future belongs to Jesus. For Paul, the future is not compromised precisely because it belongs to Jesus. Look at verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. To put it differently, Paul thought that because of Jesus Christ, the best is yet to come. And here's what I want you to see. 
The good work that God will complete among the Philippians is the very reason that Paul gives for his thanksgiving to God for them. If you look at verse 3, this whole section is a thanksgiving to God. I, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And he goes on and on with the reasons that he gives thanks. And this is the primary one. The one who began a good work among you will complete it in the day of Christ. If for us, the, the future presents itself as a, as a threatening possibility that causes us anxiety in the present, for Paul, the future is what makes possible a life full of joy and thanksgiving. Um, even in the face of suffering and uncertainty, especially in the face of suffering and uncertainty. Paul's confidence in the future that God will bring about in Christ overflows in thanksgiving in the present. And this is remarkable, and this is something I learned uh, about Paul this week that I, I didn't expect. Um, if you compare all of Paul's surviving letters, his 13 letters, to all the Roman letters that we have in the first and second century, what you find is that Paul gave thanks to God more than any other author, Christian or pagan. You think, what does it take to become the kind of person who becomes utterly distinct for thanksgiving to God, not only in the century you live in, but also in the following century? That's remarkable. And for Paul, the secret to thanksgiving and joy is his confidence in the good future that God will bring about because of Jesus Christ. The best is yet to come. Some years ago, I was, I was walking in downtown Santa Cruz with a man who's my father in the Lord, I call him, named Ted. And we're, we're walking uh, down this alley in the side street, and he just kind of like stops like this. And it's, it's kind of like when you stop because you forgot something or something like that. So I stop and say, what, what's, what's going on? And um, I look where Ted is looking, and there's like this chain link fence, and there's a vine creeping up it, and there's some flowers. And Ted says, wonderful! Um, for, for Ted, I was like, what? <laughs> Why? How are you? What? For Ted, it was like, he said he sees these flowers, and, and he sees fireworks bursting in the night sky, declaring the glory of God. For him, it was like all creation was alight with the glory of God. And I've never known somebody that's so filled and so alive with joy and thanksgiving and love as this, as this man. And, and it didn't only um, apply to flowers on chain link fences and alleys. Um, it extended to the people that he devoted himself to in his retirement, uh, particularly homeless men, um, men and women with addictions, and college students like me. And um, the, the joy and the gratitude and the love that he would express for us, people who are in process and flawed in a thousand ways, was remarkable and, and life-giving. And um, I, I learned that Ted, Ted had these phrases that, that he would repeat, and, and 
he repeated them a lot, but you knew that he meant them because every time he said it, he would kind of like straighten up and say it with, with feeling, you know? And, and he told me that when you get old, people stop listening to you. Um, I don't know if this is true, but this is what Ted told me. So he said he, he had to start repeating himself. And he also started using profanity to, you know, make sure people would pay attention. Um, but Ted's motto, one of the things that he would say over and over um, to people like me and to my homeless friends and to the people with addictions, he'd say, because of Jesus Christ, the best is yet to come. It was his motto. And it makes sense to me now that, that his joy and gratitude and thanksgiving and his confidence in, in Jesus Christ and the good future God has for us go together. They fuel one another. Again, as Paul says, I thank my God because I'm convinced of this. The one who began a good work among you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. We cannot guarantee our future, not by careful planning, not by making good choices, even incessant anxiety about the future is not a sacrifice great enough for the future to yield to us. But in this we have confidence. Our future belongs to Jesus. Because of Jesus Christ, the best is yet to come. When you pray, give thanks to God. And when you give thanks to God, draw energy and passion and joy from the future promise of God. Remember the future, not only for yourself, but for your friends, for this church, for the world, and give thanks to God. In the present, we're in process. We're incomplete, we're inadequate, we're flawed in a thousand ways, we're not yet living the truth of what we are in Christ. But in the day of Christ, God will complete the good work that he's begun among us. Now, um, I suspect that some of you might bristle a little bit uh, when I say, because of Jesus Christ, the best is yet to come. I remember doing this myself when I heard the phrase from Ted. The reason you bristle is because you've learned to suspect that things are always worse than they appear to be on the surface. You suspect that people's motives are, are always worse, um, that their true motives, greed, lust, power, and selfishness, always underlie whatever confidence is on the surface. Cynicism is the name for this kind of thoroughgoing suspicion that People and institutions are always worse than they appear. At its best, uh, cynicism sees through sentiment, it sees through naivety, it sees through cliché, uh, it sees through deception, and it gets a little closer to the truth about the way things are. You might even say that Paul is cynical in this sense, just a little bit later in Philippians, when he says, those people preaching Christ over there are really motivated by selfish ambition and by envy. It's kind of cynical. Um, but maybe another word for that is Paul sees the truth. It's wisdom. It's shrewdness. 
Um, and it's that element of cynicism that allows us to stay in it and think that it's, it's good, it's helpful for us. Um, you might say, I think in the words of Oscar Wilde, um, I'm not cynical, I just have experience. The two, however, are not so different. But cynicism is mostly a poison. In fact, I've become cynical about cynicism. I, I think the, the true motivations for cynicism, what really underlies it, are self-protection and pride. The reason you assume the worst about people and institutions is not because you know it to be true. It's because you want to protect yourself against suffering that kind of pain and disappointment that comes when they don't do what they say. When an otherwise faithful friend betrays your trust in some way, isn't it better, doesn't it feel better to be able to say, see, I, I knew it all along, I saw it coming. I, I mean, it still hurts, but to think that you knew might alleviate some of the, the sting. And cynicism is also motivated by pride. Uh, this is why political satire that, that just publicly and mercilessly skewers corrupt politicians and immoral CEOs and hypocritical talking heads is not only funny to us, it really feels good, right? Um, you get this sort of sense of, of moral superiority, like somehow you've earned moral standing in the world for the simple reason that you aren't Donald Trump or Roger Ailes or Hillary Clinton or whoever. But anything that becomes a source of pride for us needs to be diligently uprooted. And anyways, Christians are the last people who should be judgmental about anybody. The worst thing about cynicism is how it poisons your future. You get in the habit of suspecting the worst in order to protect yourself from suffering pain and disappointment, but what you're really protecting yourself against is the life that Jesus wants for you which is a life characterized by faith, hope, and love. Nothing leaves you more vulnerable than suf to suffering than faith, hope, and love. But there's nothing like faith, hope, and love to open up your humanity to wonder and joy and thanksgiving. So, if you've never repented of your cynicism, repent. There's still a better way. Jesus wants to release you to a better life. At the end of his thanksgiving, uh, in, for his friends in Philippi, beginning in verse 9, uh, Paul tells them exactly what he's praying that God will do among them. And what he prays for, I think, is the good work that he sees already beginning among them that he hopes God will complete for the day of Christ. Um, and here's my sort of free translation, but feel free to follow along. Um, Paul prays, God will make your love grow richer and richer, abound more and more with knowledge and with moral understanding, so that you can appreciate the things that are very best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ because you have been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul returns to the question of the future. He mentions the day of Christ 
for the second time in this Thanksgiving. The Christ- and what you get, I think what Paul is getting at, is that the Christian life is possible because of our hope. The suffering you go through because of your commitment to Christ is made possible because you know that on the day of Christ you will be pure and blameless because you've been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. But you might wonder, uh, well, what is the day of Christ exactly? Uh, If the day of Christ is Paul's term for the future, why not just say the future? or the things to come. Why use this weird phrase? I think Paul uses it because this little phrase, the day of Christ, contains the whole story of the Old Testament. Believe it or not. The founding event in the history of Israel was the Exodus, the Exodus from Egypt. And the pivotal moment in God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt in the Exodus was the crossing of the Red Sea. The crossing of the Red Sea was both a moment of of judgment on Egypt, which in the biblical imagination stands for oppression and violence and sin, and it's a day of salvation for Israel, uh, a day when Israel is freed to worship the Lord their God without fear. And that moment of salvation and judgment in Exodus 1430 is called the day. Later in her history, Israel once again became subject to oppressors, oppressive forces in the world. She began longing for and pining for another day, another day of judgment and salvation when the Lord would come and save Israel and judge her oppressors. Uh, The day of the Lord came to stand for Israel's future hope that God's salvation would come again. But God raised up a prophet named Amos to proclaim to Israel a difficult truth. The day of the Lord would be a day of judgment not for Israel's oppressors, but for Israel because Israel had become just like her oppressors. Sin, violence, idolatry. Amos' words are unforgettable. This is Amos 5, 18 to 20. He says, Alas for you who desire the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear, or went into a house and and rested a hand against the wall, and was bitten by a snake. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, gloom with no brightness in it? At the close of the Old Testament, Israel has suffered exile. Her return to the land was only partial and never so complete and glorious as the prophets thought it would be. At the end of the Old Testament, we're still beset by the question we began with. Is there a future for us? But this phrase, the day of Christ, also contains the whole story of the New Testament. Because there was another day A day like the day God delivered Israel from Egypt at the Red Sea. 
there was another day of salvation and judgment. The day of the Lord was to be judgment on Israel for her sin, and so it was. Jesus stood in Israel's place, and in standing in Israel's place, Jesus stood in our place. Jesus bore the judgment of the day of the Lord so that the day of Christ could be a day of salvation for us. The days of Jesus were cut short so that our days could be made everlasting. Jesus took our sin on himself, and in the word of, words of Paul's prayers, he filled us with all the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Jesus is not your judgment. The righteousness of Jesus is your salvation. It's what makes us pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And the righteousness of Jesus bears fruit that we are filled with. And I think that fruit is love and joy and wonder and thanksgiving. Because of Jesus Christ, the best is yet to come for you, for the church, for the world. The future belongs to Jesus, and Jesus shares it with us. And it's a future not vulnerable to calamity. It's a future not foreclosed by illness. It's a future not undone by death. It's a future where love overflows more and more richly with knowledge and wisdom. It's a future where our communion with God and our communion with each other is an ever-deepening well of joy. It's a future where the fullness of life and the fullness of peace and, and the fullness of, all the fullness of God will fill all things. There is a future for us. There is. It belongs to Jesus. And its name is glory. Thanks be to God. Glory and praise be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen.